We all have questions about the Bible. At Milwaukee Chi Alpha, we want to take the questions we have about the Old Testament and use them to get us closer to Jesus and what we're calling the XA Learning Hour. And we strongly believe that if God is real, if what we believe is true, our questions will lead us back to Him. So let's start this journey in the XA Learning Hour, questioning the Old Testament. about Abraham in Genesis 15 through 17, where the Lord sets up a covenant with Abraham. And I'm curious if any of you are familiar with what happens as God sets up this covenant. You don't remember? No, that's okay. We're going to jump straight in. I'm sure some of you remember. We're going to read Genesis 15. We're just going to read the first half of this, or most of this chapter to start. Starting in verse 1, after this, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. I'm sorry, Abram, because his name is, he will be called Abraham, he is currently Abram. The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram, I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless, and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, you have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall be your offspring. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. He said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. We're going to stop there for a minute. Um, we have this great picture of Abram at instruction of God taking these animals, cutting them in half, and putting them on each side to create kind of like this path in the middle. Um, and just for a second, like how gross that is and how bloody it is, and some would even say that they were placed in a way like with a... Uh, crease in the middle so like the blood would pool at the bottom like this sounds so fun and then birds of the prey came down on the carcasses like so clearly this isn't like these are sitting here for a little bit they're sitting here long enough for birds of prey to come down on the carcass and this is a passage we're going to talk about um, before we jump in I have used lots of different resources from this including the Bible Project uh, Bama podcast. I have used The Dream of You by Joe Saxon as well as some other resources online, um, cross-referencing and checking this information. But we're going to jump, we're going to leave this here for a minute. We'll come back to this. In the beginning of the world, we've talked about this in the past few weeks, we have this perfect world where Adam and Eve were charged to live with God, live for God on his behalf, ruling the world, ruling the animals, and as the Bible project says, representing his being God's righteousness to all. That God would bless them and all they had to do was not eat 
of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. We've talked about this. Um, we talked about the tree specifically last week in Jeff's message. You can hear that on our podcast. But we also know, based on last week in Genesis chapter 3, that things didn't work out. Adam and Eve ate from the tree. We had what we call the fall in Genesis 3, and sin and corruption enter the world. And this picture of Adam and Eve tending the garden, caring for the world, representing God to the world, falls apart. And we see the Bible describes God working to repair this broken relationship between God and man, and between man and man, or person and person. But we see God working to repair the broken relationship between God and humanity throughout the Bible and bring people back to him. This is the story we see throughout the Bible. Enter covenants. So we don't really use the word covenant very much. We talk about contracts, we talk about agreements, but this covenant is the language we see throughout the Bible. And I think this distinction is important because covenants, um, covenants were very strong, and we'll come back to talk about that a little bit. But we see throughout the Bible some of the most notable covenants we see in the Bible are between God and Noah, God and Abraham, and between God and David. And these covenant, as well as between God and Moses and the Israelites. And these covenants are generally two-sided. God says, if you do this, I will do this. So if you fulfill your end of the covenant, I will fulfill my end of the covenant. So for example, we see this a lot around the law, which Jeff is going to talk about next week, the law that's given to Moses and to the Israelites. God says, you are my people. If you obey my law, I will bless and prosper you. Again, come back next week. Jeff's going to talk about that and what that means for us, as well as Daniel's going to touch on that more in a few weeks. Lots of exciting things coming. But this is this idea of this two-sided covenant where if you fulfill your part, God will fulfill his part. And to us, this might sound a little bit backwards, this language, like, why do I have to earn your blessing and prosperity? Why is this, like, why is it set up this way that I fulfill my part and then you do yours? But context is everything, as we've talked about. And so we're going to look at covenants in the Old Testament in ancient times, because this was very common. This language that we see in the Old Testament is not unique to the Old Testament. This is ancient literature, ancient worlds had these kind of contracts all the time. And so a few of the popular contracts that we are aware of that we see are kinship contracts, royal covenants, or sorry, yeah, kinship covenants, royal covenants, and then suzerian and vassal treaties or covenants. And this is what we're going to look at because we see the Suzerian and vassal treaties throughout the Bible. So hang with me. We're going to break this down a little bit. So Suzerian and vassal treaties are two-sided treaties where on one side you have the Suzerian and on the other side you have the vassal. And the Suzerian was a great king or a greater king or a greater party that entered into this covenant. And the vassal on the other side of this was a lesser king or a lesser party or a lesser country in need of help or protection and wanting land or something from the Caesarean. So you have two parties. You have the greater party, which is the Caesarean. You have the lesser party, which is the vassal. So what would happen is the vassal would want something, again, land, protection, help, something, and the Caesarean would say, I will provide that. So the vassal is seeking something from the stronger Caesarean, and this becomes the covenant. 
So in these covenants, we see that God is clearly the greater part in this. God is a Caesarean in these covenants, and humanity is the vassal in these covenants, the lesser party. Humanity is wanting blessing, protection, wanting something from God, who is clearly the greater party in this agreement. And this isn't like covenants in our day. Again, we talked a little bit, covenants versus contracts and agreements. This isn't something like in our day where if you want out, you can just break the contract or buy your way out. You know, like, okay, I'm going to cancel this contract and I'll lose my deposit, but I can still get out. That's not how this really worked. This was a much more binding covenant with really big results and problems if you didn't fall through on your part. This was something you were in, and you were only in this kind of contract with one other person, because for you to enter it with one person and then another person was really problematic if you were the vassal and the Caesareans would be very unhappy and life wouldn't be very good for you. So this is what we have, this is what we're seeing. It's a binding covenant with big results if you don't follow through. Um, there are strong relationships that really bond the Caesarean and the vassal together. Um, so we see the format, which we'll just run through briefly, um, and if you look through, we're not going to do this today, but if you look through these passages in the Bible, you can find this, you can find this format throughout them. We see the introduction, introducing, um, who is part of this, introduce, sorry, introducing the covenants, Defining the relationship, defining the Caesarean and vassal relationship to each other, defining the rules and the terms, swearing or committing before God or the gods, um, listing the witnesses to this or the gods, and then the blessings and the curses. So the blessings and the curses would be what happens if the covenant is upheld or broken. So what happens, so again, if you fulfill the law, I will bless you and prosper you. If you don't, fill in the blank for what happens if you don't fulfill this covenant. And this is a covenant structure we see over and over again in the Bible. Um, and again, this is, it's, a, it's a strong bond where the vassal is essentially pledging along with whatever is agreed upon, which we'll look at specifically with Abraham, but is pledging loyalty, like I am part of you. The Caesarean is basically saying, you are part of me, you are part of what I'm doing, you have my protection, like you are an extension of me, and the vassal is pledging loyalty. So it's a very strong bond here. And we see this um, throughout the Bible, and there are some interesting ways to act out this ceremony, which we'll get to. But we see over and over and over again that man breaks their end of this Caesarean vassal covenant with God. So Noah, Abraham, Israel, Moses, David, none of them are able to fulfill their end of the bargain. And we even see this at times. Israel goes into exile because they so poorly don't fulfill their end of the covenant. So today we are going to look at the covenant between God and Abraham. Yes, uh, question. Did you, did you just have, like, maybe one example of this kind of covenant happening, like, in, on an earthly scale? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. So, um, I don't have a specific example. Okay. I could, the question was, do I have an example of this happening on an earthly scale? Um, it looks like maybe Caitlin's <laughs> looking something up. 
Um, I, so I don't have a specific example, but a practical example would be, or a hypothetical example would be, um, that I read was a nation, a nation, one nation coming to another and saying, like, we're being attacked by these people. Will you help us? Like, we need your protection. If these people attack us, will you defend us? Will you go to war with us? And so the two kings would say, the greater king will say, yes, like, this is what I need. I need you to provide me these resources, this land, and your loyalty. And if you provide X, Y, and Z, then we will come to your aid. And if this country attacks you, it'll be an offense against us. Um, and together we will do, do this. So you could, you see this throughout the Bible where Israel even makes different treaties with different countries. And it's possible, I, you'd have to look into it specifically, but it's possible those are also suzerian and vassal. Um, contracts. Do you have an example? Caitlin? So in um, history, specifically you mentioned Israel, they were the lesser party to Egyptians and Assyrians at different points. So the Egyptians and the Assyrians were the suzerains, and Israel and other tribal kingdoms around the Levant were the vassals. And there's other examples in history where they probably wouldn't have used the word, but even like the Ottoman Empire in context, even though they wouldn't have done the whole splitting the animals apart. The idea of there being an overarching state and then underlying states such as Serbia, Crete, all these little ones where they're reliant and dependent on the larger state. Um. Yeah, so that was a big, thank you, Caitlin. Countries doing this was a big example I saw. Another example I saw was marriage, that sometimes this would be done with marriage, where the groom is pledging to take care of the bride, and the bride's family is saying, you are now part of us, and we will protect you and join you part of our family. Um, so that would be another example of this, like, lesser and greater. Um, yeah, any other questions on that before we move on? Awesome. And I encourage you to go look this up. Um, you can see this is, there's historical information everywhere. Caesarean and vassal covenants is very fascinating stuff. Do you need to know how to spell Caesarean? <laughs> look it up. Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it yeah, is. Too, yeah, yeah Caesarean is S-U-Z. E-R-A-I-N, and then I, we can also, I can give you that okay, later. Exactly. I can send that to you later. Um, yeah, so going back to the covenant between God and Abraham, why Abraham? This is significant um, because what we're seeing here is the beginning of the formation of Israel. Israel, which you are probably aware, the Jewish people, Israel named after Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. Um, we're not getting into that today. Um, but Israel was God's chosen people, chosen to reflect God himself to the world, to be God to the world, to be his hands and feet is a common term nowadays that would be similar to what they were supposed to do. Um, and we see Abraham, this covenant is really the start of that because the covenant is between God and Abraham, but also between God and his descendants. His descendants, it's Abraham, Isaac, and then Jacob, whose name is changed to Israel. And so Abraham's descendants, though Abraham doesn't know it at this point, would be the Israelites. And it's one, again, designed for his descendants and is designed to impact the whole world in a positive way. And we see this covenant unfolding through Abraham's life. We see a lot of it in chapter 15. We see it again in chapter 17, but we also see it in chapter 22 is another place it comes up. And we're going to read a couple of these passages, but we see this language, the blessing to the nations. God's, we also see God's intent for this to be an everlasting covenant that spreads throughout the earth 
through Abraham and his descendants. So I'm going to read quickly Genesis 17, starting the end of verse 4. And then we'll jump ahead to Genesis 22. Again, these are, these are what God, this is God's end of the deal, what God is saying will happen for Abraham. As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come. To be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan, where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. And then we're going to jump ahead to Genesis 22, verse 17 and 18. And again, what we're demonstrating right here is the intent that God is wanting this to not just bless Abraham, but his descendants and the whole world through him. So Genesis 22, verse 17, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies, and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. So again, this is not only for Abraham. God's intent is for the world. At the beginning, we talked about the fall of Adam and Eve and that broken relationship and how God started to enter into covenants with humans to help restore humanity back to himself. And this is part of the intent of this covenant between God and Abraham. So with that in mind, we're going to turn back to Genesis 15. We're going to read through part of this, and then we're going to kind of break down what is happening here. So chapter 15, um, we'll start at verse 4, because we already read this once. Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside, him being Abram, and said, Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all of these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the house opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcass, but Abram drove them away. So we've already read this, and we're going to keep going in a little bit. And we've talked a lot about covenants, and this being the beginning of the covenant between God and Abram. But this idea, let's talk just briefly about this idea of Abram taking these animals that God told him to get and cutting them in half and spreading them apart. This is to us really bizarre, <laughs> really bizarre. Um, to Abraham, this wasn't, this was familiar. He would have been aware of this practice. One commentator I looked at even said, God didn't tell Abraham to cut it up. God just said, go get it. And Abraham knew this is what I need to do with it. Um, but so Abram was familiar with this idea. He knew when God said, go get these animals, that this was 
covenant that they were about to enter into. Abram knew what was happening. But this is where it gets really crazy. Um, well, actually, so this is how this generally works. We're going to read forward in a minute and see what actually happens. But what generally works, we talked about the animals being split up, the blood pooled in the middle, like just how much this would smell and be really, really gross. But what is normal in these Caesarean vassal covenants is for the parties to walk between the two as they're saying, like, this is what I'm committing to, as a symbolic action to say, if I don't uphold my end of this covenant, let what happened to these animals happen to me. So if you're looking at the bride and groom scenario, that the groom is saying, if I don't take care of my bride, let this happen to me. Or if you're talking about two kings, the lesser king saying, if I don't uphold my end of the covenant, let this happen to me. Very powerful. This is, we've talked about how strong this bond is. Very powerful language here. Very powerful. Um, yeah, very powerful. Very powerful imagery. So we're going to keep reading here. So verse 12, picking up where we left off. Um, as the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for four hundred years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possession. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. We're going to pause here really briefly. If you were here last week or if you listened to the podcast, we talked about this idea of God being patient. Um, and we referenced this verse where as the Israelites go and all the people in the lands, um, God removes them. Um, this is one of the passages we reference, him, his patience waiting. He's saying here, like, I'm going to wait. I'm not wiping them out yet because they're, I'm letting them, giving them time. But coming back to this verse 17, you can go back and listen to that last podcast if this isn't making sense. So verse 17, when the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, to your descendants, I give this land from the Wadi of Egypt to the great river of the Euphrates. The land of the Kenites, Kenyazites, Kadamonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Raphites, Amorites, Canaanites, Gergeshites, and Jebusites. What I really want to emphasize is verse 17 and 18. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. So this smoking fire pot and blazing torch would represent God's presence. We see this in the past, we see this, or we see this later with the Israelites, the pillar of smoke, the pillar of fire, these represent God and the presence of God. So this is things where this is where things get really crazy because Abraham falls asleep, Abram falls asleep, and when he wakes or sees this vision or however it works, he sees this smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. Again, the point of cutting up the animals and making this big gross mess was for the parties to say, if I don't fulfill my end, what happened to these animals happened to me. Abram, as the lesser party, as the vassal, should have walked between these animals and declared, 
if I don't fulfill my end of the covenant, if I don't follow God, if my descendants don't follow God and his commands, let what happened to these animals happen to me. And instead, he looks up and he sees God doing it on his behalf. He sees God walking between the animals on his behalf. God is basically saying, if you do not hold up your end of the covenant, I will pay the price. I will pay the price. And we know, and Abraham knows, and God knows that Abraham and his descendants will not keep his end, their end of the covenant. And yet God is declaring that God himself will pay the necessary price. That God himself will be torn like the animals when Abraham doesn't follow through. And this is an incredible call to Jesus and what Jesus will do. Because when Jesus comes to earth, he fulfills this covenant. He fulfills Abraham's end and pays the price. His body is torn on Abraham's behalf, on our behalf, to fulfill this covenant and bring Abraham and his descendants and us back into relationship with him. In fact, Jesus fulfills all of the covenants in the Old Testament. We very briefly referenced but didn't dig into the covenants between God and Moses and David and Israel and Noah. But Jesus fulfills all of these covenants. He is the ancestor of Abraham. He follows the law given to Moses and the Israelites, and he is the promised descendant of King David. Bible Project does a great video on covenants, and I encourage you to go watch it. It's maybe five minutes long, but it talks about these covenants and how Jesus in particular fulfilled them. We see this idea introduced by the prophets who basically say to the people that the kings and the people and the religious leaders, everyone has broken this covenant. And remember the result of the breaking of the covenant that we've already talked about? Yeah, not fun. And we see in this time period, we see the people exiled at times because of the broken covenant. But even as the prophets talk about this, they speak of hope for a new covenant. They speak of hope for a new covenant, all fulfilled by Jesus. Where requirements aren't placed on us as far as what we have to do to keep God's favor or be in relationship with him. Because instead, Jesus has already done it. Jesus has already fulfilled the new covenant on our behalf. It's no longer about what we do. It's about what he already did. And now us following God is not to earn relationship with him, but because we've been given relationship with him. Because we're already declared heirs and sons and daughters. This is our motivation to follow Jesus. What does this mean for us? Let's look quickly at Genesis 17. We're going to read a portion of this chapter. Starting in verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Then I will make my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your number. So again, we're seeing here this is the same covenant that is being discussed again. We already talked about chapter 15 with the covenant and the animals being split in half. Chapter 16, um, you can go read it on your own. We're not talking about it today, but it is... Abram essentially trying to fulfill God's end of the covenant 
for him. And it gets really messy with um, not just Sarah, but Hagar and Ishmael. So you can go read that sometime. Uh, but picking up 17 verse 3, Abram fell face down and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan, where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you. I will be their God. Then God said to Abraham, As for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, for the generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. For the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household or bought with money from a foreigner, those who are not your offspring. Whether born in your household or bought with your money, they must be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant, an uncircumcised male. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. God also said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you are no longer to call her Sarai. Her name will be Sarah. I will bless her and will surely give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. Abraham fell face down. He laughed and said to himself, Will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of ninety? And Abraham said to God, If only Ishmael might live under your blessing. Then God said, Yes, but your wife Sarah will bear you a son, and you will call him Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. I will surely bless him. I will make him fruitful and will greatly increase his numbers. He will be the father of twelve rulers. I will make him into a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you by this time next year. When he had finished speaking with Abraham, God went from him. So what do we see here? We see a lot in this chapter. We're not talking about all of it, but there's two things that I want to look at in this chapter. The first is God gives them a sign being circumcision. So if you look at this passage, we talked about this a few weeks ago, um, this idea of a chiasm where we see in scripture, um, you see a lot of repetition, you see mirroring, you see mirroring between name changes and going in. We're not going to look at all the details today. We can talk about it later or um, you can look for the chiasm yourself, but a chiasm points to the center of a passage to this kind of like treasure or main idea we're looking at. And the center of this happens to be the sign of circumcision. And giving a sign was normal within these covenants. We saw that as well with Noah. When God makes a covenant with Noah, God gives them the sign being the rainbow, saying, I will never again destroy the earth with a great flood. 
And that case was unique because their God as the Caesarean provided the covenant where normally the covenant would have been provided by the vassal. And that's what we see here, that God is telling Abraham, the vassal, what the sign will be. That every man in your household will be circumcised. And the reason I bring this up, one, clearly it's important because it, it's so repeated within this chapter. But I think also when we get to discussion of circumcision in the New Testament or later in the Bible, it, it's really easy for us to skip over it. It seems like a trivial thing, um, but it's not. It's not random. Anytime Paul or a New Testament author or references circumcision, they're not being weird. They're not just talking about some random law. They're referencing the covenant. Because for the Israelites, for God's people, circumcision was a sign of the covenant made between Abraham and God. It was a sign of the covenant that Jesus would eventually fill, fulfill. Sorry. And so that sign is actually very important. And we see as well, this is why Paul and uh, New Testament apostles, they discuss, like, is circumcision still necessary when the Greeks and Gentiles are wanting to join they discuss do we need to make them be circumcised and they decide that it is no longer necessary and they use this language of the new covenant because Jesus has fulfilled the new covenant the messianic covenant circumcision is no longer necessary it is part of the old covenant and so that's important for us to know um, and I also had some other questions earlier about this. Why circumcision? What is the significance here? I don't have all the answers, but what I can say is that uh, from my research, looking specifically at the IVP Bible background commentary by um, a couple different authors, it talks about this passage and references that circumcision was something that would have been done by other ancient cultures. So this is... It can be seen as, I'm going to quote from the Bible background commentary, circumcision can be seen as one of the many cases where God transforms a common practice to a new, though not necessarily unrelated, purpose in revealing himself and relating to his people. Uh, another thing I want to point out here is um, the fact that blood is shed also signifies that this is a sacrificial ritual and may function as a substitution for human sacrifice, which was practiced by other people. So other cultures would have done human sacrifice, which thankfully God did not um, like or ask of his people. Um, but this very well could have symbolized, the shedding of blood could have symbolized the sacrificing, the, this idea of sacrificing ourselves to God without actually sacrificing ourselves, giving of ourselves to God, giving of our family, our people to God. The other thing I want to look at, we've talked about the sign circumcision. The other thing I want to look at in this passage, we see God changing Abram and Sarai's names. In verse 5, he changes Abram's name to Abraham. And in verse 15, he changed Sarah's not, Sarai's name to Sarah. And we need to know names are so significant in ancient times. Names defined who you were and who you were going to be. We see this. We see 
I love the example of Jacob's wives, Leah and Rachel. They're in this struggle for acceptance from their husband and from God. And as they have children, and as they name their children, the names they give their children reflect the struggle they are going through. And you see this unfold. You see Jacob himself, he is named um, Jacob, meaning the deceiver, and he becomes a man who deceives over and over again throughout his life. And you also see throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, you see Jesus changing people's names. So he changes Jacob's name to Israel. And here we see he changes Abram's name to Abraham, Sarah's name to Sarah. And these are always significant moments because Jesus, God is not just changing their name. He's changing their identity. He's not just changing their name. He's changing their identity. And here God is renaming both of them based on their relationship with God and his promise to them. And what a beautiful moment that they are now defined by their relationship with God and his promise to them in their covenant. And we see Abraham meant exalted father and will now be, it. Abraham means father of many. And Sarai is now Sarah as she will be the mother of nations and will bear a son. There's also thoughts that this name, chain also, name, name change also suggests that God is claiming them as his. They are under his protection. They are his people. They are loyal to him. And for us, while we don't have new names when we come to Jesus, when we decide to follow him, what we do see is Jesus wanting to remake us. Jesus does want to change our identity. As we enter into a new covenant with Jesus, this new covenant of Jesus that he has fulfilled that we've been talking about, Jesus wants to remake us and rename us. He wants to change our identity. He wants our new identity to be based on our relationship with him and he wants to claim us as his all because Jesus came and fulfilled the covenant we weren't able to fulfill all because Jesus came and fulfilled the covenant that we could never with us live for the XA Learning Hour, come to the UWM Student Union, room W145 at 1.30 on Thursdays. Thanks for listening.